Hello, my name is Paul Caddy, and welcome to the Business in a Digital Age podcast. Today, we have the second installment with the Right Honourable Justin Greening, who explores social mobility and why it matters. Justin spoke with my colleagues, David Jackson and Tony Randall, a few weeks ago in our podcast studio in London. Here's a flavour of what Justine has to say. I think for Britain, we've got a particular problem because we've maybe got a more socially immobile society than others. And if the 21st century is really going to be powered by talent and AI that comes from talent, then Houston, we have a problem compared to other countries. So it's even more in Britain's interest that we just allow talent to develop and then connect up. More opportunity for more people is how we all get more opportunity. Justine also looks into her past and considers what she might have changed. I think I was a very quiet version of myself as a younger person because that was me respecting authority, actually. And I think probably now I could have opened my mouth a lot more and talked, but at the time, that's not how I'd been brought up. So I thought I was being well, you know, I was being respectful by listening and I could hear other people sometimes butting in and I think they were a bit rude actually because they hadn't been asked for their opinion. And, and so it's so all of that stuff going on and, and smart companies now understand that and will find ways to ask that talent. She also notes how implementing change on social mobility is such a hard thing to do. Let's face it, inequality of opportunity is, is probably Britain's most ingrained tradition that we have as a country. And that's why changing and almost challenging the power of inertia is so hard. Well, there's lots already to think about there. So it's over to David Jackson to kick off this instalment. Hello, my name is David Jackson and I'm the CEO at Shoesmiths and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the Business in a Digital Age podcast. We're honoured today to welcome our guest to the podcast, the Right Honourable Justine Greening. Justine, welcome to the studio and the Business in a Digital Age podcast. I'm also joined today by one of my co-authors, Tony Randall. Welcome to you, Tony, too. David, really great to be here. I thought the book was brilliant, by the way, so loving the chance to do a podcast on all things tech. Thank you very much and we love the plug. So kicking off with our first question then. The pace, complexity and magnitude of change are increasing and in our book we call it Change Cubed. How is the pace of change affecting social mobility would you say? One of the issues we've seen in recent years is events move so fast you don't have chance to have that normal time to develop policy. So I think if you're in policy, then you're getting left behind. I think in terms of the substance of the issue, obviously post-COVID, social mobility becomes a bigger challenge than it was before. And I think the pace of change is going to speed up, but we're still left with these quite fundamental issues like social mobility to tackle. And we can't really have any conversation on tech without mentioning AI, which I think has been on um, everyone's agenda, not least of all raised profile as a result of chat GPT. We, in the book, we, we certainly think that AI, powered by data, will be the most disruptive tech in business over the next 10 years. What effect do you think that AI will have on social mobility? Potentially all sorts of different effects. So if you have AI, meaning that 
actually you can create your own app because it will help you do that. Whereas at the moment you now need somebody who's a good programmer. Then to some extent it's reducing barriers to be an entrepreneur. Maybe you don't quite need that level of capital in the future that you needed in the past. So it's another one, another one reduced. I think to some extent it may well enable you to get better advice and to explore in a more qualitative fashion careers and choices that you've got in a way, again, that you couldn't before. I think on the downside, it may make the whole issue of algorithms and the fact that they they steer companies down a particular furrow ever deeper based on people's choices, it may make that issue worse. So it can be a force for good, but it can also be a force for bad, as most technology is. We just have to be really clear-sighted about where it may harm social mobility and then take actual decisions consciously about how we're going to stop that happening. Exactly. Um, Having bias built into the machine is the last thing that we want. I think also AI could potentially broaden or make that social mobility gap worse, actually. Because if you think about the professions that are likely to be impacted or the jobs that are likely to be impacted by AI, it could exacerbate some inequalities in our society that already exist. So I think you're right, Justine, that AI could be a potential force for good and speeding up access to information and um, making things more efficient. But we just, I think this is why governments around the globe are looking at this very carefully to see what impact AI will have on society generally because I think it could be quite profound. And they need they need to tackle this because on the one hand, you've got AI maybe taking out some of those stepping stone routes into careers. And on the other hand, it, it's making the need for change more profound because actually we are upskilling. So potentially this is good news. We moved that higher skilled, higher salary version of Britain that will be better. The problem we've got will be if we don't know how to help people shift up themselves. So businesses have a key role to play in a sense. And what's in it for them is if they can do that, they can still access local talent quite easily. If they can't do it, then the talent base that was able to fulfill the jobs of the past won't be able to necessarily do this in the future. So we've all got an interest in helping to upskill and reskill as that tech revolution completely transforms our economy again. And there's a huge opportunity as well for, for this country in terms of this kind of shift that's happening across the globe. I guess it remains to be seen what Britain's response to those changing dynamics will be and how, I guess, the government can um, support that shift from how we used to live and operate into what's going to be the way of the future, I guess. Yes, and of course, with hybrid working, people can more easily work from anywhere. So again, it shakes up potentially some of those social mobility cold spots. You know, I'm growing up in Rotherham. There isn't as much opportunity on the doorstep as I want. I don't want to work in steel. I don't want to work in coal. So so even as a 10-year-old, I'm already thinking, probably going to have to leave to get the kind of opportunity I want. All of these things get shaken up and the world will become very different. It can be different good or it can be different bad. But the key is looking ahead and actually navigating purposely 
that route that you actually want to get to, not just waiting for it to happen to you. So we've seen that hybrid working has transformed the way many people work, but the mood music seems to be changing a bit, um, encouraging people back into the office, typically for at least three days a week in many cases. What impact do you think, good or bad, does this have on social mobility? I think if it's handled effectively, then it can genuinely be a benefit, but there are some downsides. So clearly people often want more flexibility in their lives. And if you look at many companies now, that's not just better for their current workforce, but it, again, it reduces barriers to people who might want to work, people who are carers, people who may be in the wrong, quote, quote, wrong part of the country to be able to, you know, they can't move um, because of finances. And increasingly for a young population who wants to have that, as they would call it, side hustle, actually for entrepreneurship and allowing people to have that breadth of life that they want, it can be hugely beneficial. And I think most of all, it's what the talent market wants. So this is going to happen. And the days of a boss going, you will be, you can try saying to people, you will be in the office five days a week, but don't expect anyone to be working with you, for you in about three to four to five years time. The downside of hybrid working is, A, that it means informal networks may start to dominate and therefore if it's who you know, not what you know, because you're not in the office to show what you know, that's probably not good for social mobility. And more broadly, businesses will have to work out how they can develop talent, even if it's more remote. And so for me, when I look back at my time pre-COVID as a Secretary of State, it was only when we got into COVID and I I was having to, to lead my team much more remotely, obviously a much smaller team, you know, it's the social mobility pledge. I realised a lot of my whole style is being in a room with people saying, right, here's where we're going, here's why it matters, let's do this thing. And I had to really think, well, how am I going to get that energy as a leader when it's Zoom? So you can still really take teams somewhere, but I think leadership has changed in a post-COVID world. Developing people has changed in a post-COVID world. And we just really all need to rise to that challenge. And I think there's, there is a tendency to say, oh, we've got to all be back. Actually, the, as ever, David, the, the answer is, it's a balance, isn't it? <laughs> so it's just about striking the balance. I think so. Thinking uh, specific, specifically through a social mobility lens, and I guess speaking as someone that was first in my family to go to university and you know, getting arguably getting a career in the law probably wasn't on the cards for me, or it shouldn't have been on the cards for me, um, but here I am. And I think back to the early days of my career that having role models or access to role models in the office was hugely important because I didn't have professional role models growing up as a kid. And so those first few years as a trainee, um, just observing, interacting with people from a professional community was super important um, because you kind of learn by reference to the people around you, how you should act in a professional way. And I guess one of the concerns that I have um, around the hybrid um, working model is that, you know, does that next generation of kids that, you know, are first in their families to go to university and work in a pe professional environment, do they ha still have access to professional mentors and kind of role models in the way that we did when we were coming up through the ranks? And if they don't, because it's more difficult in a kind of hybrid world, 
what more could we be doing to make sure that they do have access to professional role models so that they can make that kind of transition into professional life in the way that we we were able to. That's spot on. And in a way, it also highlights though a problem with the past, which was it was informal because I remember being at PricewaterhouseCoopers and listening to how people dealt with clients and, and how they dealt with them on the phone and then basically doing that myself when I was on the phone to a client. There's a bit of me that also thinks, of course, there were some other people in the office who had a whole range of support. And so maybe what this challenges us all to do is maybe even fix that issue that you were learning off watching other people. And so what is going to lead us down? If Britain's smart, and and to our credit, we're having a big debate on social mobility and levelling up, I think earlier than other countries then we will we will say, well, actually, there's quite a lot of good stuff that happened, you know, almost naturally, a little bit by chance, pre-COVID. Great employers will make sure that great mentors are there for sure now. And they'll have to do that because they will have to get more organised. But those will be the employers that talent wants to go to. Because I think going back to that very first bit of our conversation... Young people are much more conscious now of what they're missing out on and therefore they are much more likely to look for employers that are plugging those career capital gaps, social cultural capital gaps that they now know they have. I just think maybe for me, possibly for you, David, it was only when we got to work that we suddenly thought, oh, I see, that's how you talk with clients. And But actually I think now this generation is, understands the gaps and they're looking for businesses that can help them overtly catch up faster. Do you think there's more that schools could be doing to support kids, particularly from more challenged um, backgrounds? Because I think that, you know, when we look at um, uh, students that apply to us for roles, um, particularly young people, there's there's a massive difference between those that have come from traditional middle class backgrounds in terms of how they present both the visually and also in terms of how they converse, and those kids that come from working class backgrounds. And I do think that um, kids from working class backgrounds are at a disadvantage because they don't seem to be given the same level of um, social kind of uh, skills or opportunity to practice how they present in that professional context. I, I feel as though we're, we're maybe doing them you know, a disservice in not giving them more support to make that transition into the workplace and to conduct themselves in a, in a way that best shows off their talents. Yeah, and and actually, whether it's about understanding what careers are out there, you talked about not sort of having that sense of opportunities, or a, about those wider skills that you will need to be able to access them, we need to really make sure there is space and time in education for a focus on those in a way that we just haven't before. We now know that actually when you ask employers, it's these wider skills that they are really looking for. And yet within the education system, we expect teachers to sort of make sure team working's happening, projects, uh, project management, and all sorts of these broader skills. I think what I hope to see is a much more conscious shoehorning of this in, but it does also take employers. And so you'll find that some employers will reach out to schools that can particularly perhaps benefit from employability, you know, work readiness skills. 
but often they're the schools that are least able to accept that offer in a sense because they're struggling just to get children through exams. I think we're sort of on the cusp of quite a different version of corporate Britain looking ahead than the one that we've we've had in the past because the, the businesses that will succeed are the ones that do all of this and that are able to be part of breaking down the barriers to get to that great talent, David. And when I look at, again, I can only, we've only got our own lived experiences, but I think I was a very quiet version of myself as a younger person because that was me respecting authority, actually. And, and, and I think probably now I could have opened my mouth a lot more and talked, but at the time, you know, that's not how I'd been brought up. So I thought I was being well, you know, I was being respectful by listening and I could hear other people sometimes butting in and I think they were a bit rude actually because they hadn't been asked for their opinion. And, and so it's all of that stuff going on and, and smart companies now understand that and will find ways to ask that talent what's going on and find about that person even though maybe that's what they're thinking. We've um, we've talked a lot about um, recent changes and technology. Um, looking backwards for a, for a, for a moment, in our book, um, we were amazed when we were researching. We were amazed at some of the facts we unearthed. For example, um, a study in 2013 found that certain Norman surnames still dominate the student roles at Oxford and Cambridge. Um, it can feel that social mobility is up against a pretty big and age-old barrier. Um, is it? Yes. I mean, let's face it, inequality of opportunity is, is probably Britain's most ingrained tradition that we have as a country. And that's why changing and, and, and almost challenging the power of inertia is so hard and it's why it's much more than just politics it's about whether employers change but it's also about social attitudes changing i think for britain we've got a particular problem because we've maybe got a more socially immobile society than others and if the 21st century is really going to be powered by talent and ai that comes from talent then houston we have a problem compared to other com countries. So it's even more in Britain's interest that we just allow talent to develop and then connect up. More opportunity for more people is how we all get more opportunity. It's a bit like arguing that somehow climate change is someone else's problem. Well, it, it might be today if you live in certain parts of the world, but eventually it's all of our problems. And that's the case for planet, but it also turns out that's the case for people. Here's a shocking piece of um, uh, research that was conducted by a University of Law a couple of years ago. They found that only 6% of people surveyed expect to see lawyers coming from a working class background. How do we change attitudes in society? And not just for working class lawyers, but for working class accountants, doctors, surveyors? People have to really see a path into these professions and think it's credible. So yes, it's about seeing people like you 
But if you're the exception that actually proves the rule, yeah. then they won't believe it. So, so we've seen quite a lot of changes actually in the legal profession. Um, it was quite interesting to see some of the breakdown of those first, is it um, the, the, the second stage qualifications that came out earlier in August. And they actually showed a profession that is broadening out. Interestingly, they showed people who said that their background was state educated getting slightly higher performance outcomes than those who'd been through the privately educated system, which I thought was interesting. The group that did the best, interestingly, was people who got on a scholarship to a private school. They outperformed the other two groups, which probably tells you, if you're a policymaker, talent plus resource equals success. Really. So I think... I think the the law, the legal sector is a really interesting case study on social mobility because there has been a lot of work done on social mobility on getting in. I think the next big challenge is getting on. And and really that's where I think a lot of attention needs to focus now. But, you know, working upstream in schools to help people understand law, how many opportunities there are, the fact that not everyone who wants to be a lawyer um, you still have a great career in the legal sector, not as a lawyer. Um, yeah, there's there's a long way to go, I think, for the sector and, and for the professions in just simply explaining just the variety of roles you've got to offer people. I mean, it surprises me that in, you know, in this day and age, only 6% of people surveyed thought that lawyers would come from a working class background. I, I could have believed that 30 years ago, but but not today. And certainly what we see um, and I guess it helps when you've got relatively senior people in law firm environments speaking openly about their journeys and the fact that they, you know, um, don't necessarily come from the traditional quotes background. Certainly, it's a more open topic for discussion today than it was when I was coming up through the ranks as a junior lawyer. Um, and I think that's why it's important for people like me and, and, and others that have had a similar journey that we talk about it openly because we want to you know, signal that the legal profession is a great profession from people from all walks of life. And you don't need to come from a particular background to succeed. But it's why the um, the role models alongside measurement really matters. Because if you're sat around a boardroom and you're the only woman, it's kind of obvious. Um, the same on ethnicity, but one of the reasons Britain hasn't made more progress on social mobility is it is quite hidden. Who knows what our backgrounds are? So first of all, we have to say that so that people don't think, um, you know, you're from a really privileged background when actually you've started off wherever. But secondly, you literally have to have the evidence because otherwise they can't deduce it just by visually getting a sense of who they're meeting in the business. And and so all of these things are slightly different perhaps from other other areas where we've seen employers try and broaden out to, to a wider talent pool. Rather, in, rather incredibly. Um, I think um, in 2020 there was a survey uh, that found that almost 90% of businesses don't track the socioeconomic backgrounds of their employees. Uh, and again, that's the status quo. And and I also think we've not been very good at or comfortable talking about this. Um, there's actually, I was thinking about this the other day, quite a lot of 
language that we use, like chip on your shoulder or, you know, knowing your place or don't get above your station, that always hints at a society that has been actually quite keen for people not to talk about class and and all of that. And in a sense, we haven't done ourselves any favours because we now end up with a version of Britain where at the same time as we've got cost of living challenges and people are really finding it hard to afford the basics, we've also got fantastic employers with fantastic careers that they can't find the skilled people to go into. So in a sense, you don't fix problems by not talking about them. We have to have an open discussion about what the situation is and that includes employers understanding their own staff and and I guess the final point to make on this is how on earth would I have ever improved the education system really if I'd not known how our free school meal children were doing on attainment or we'd not had any sense of what the pupil premium investment was delivering it would have been impossible And so if what we know we need to do is close gaps, then employers need that same level of data insight to make sure that A, they're playing a role, but B, they aren't losing great talent because somehow at some stage in their organisation, it's kind of leaving. And certainly for law, I think there's a lot of evidence to tell you that as much progress as there's been made on getting into law, there's definitely a an effect where people get into their careers and then just think, probably not going to make part of it, don't kind of feel sufficiently like I'm going to be able to progress. They go off and they're brilliant legal counsels in industry. So the sort of professional bit of the sector really, you know, like Shoesmith, not like Shoesmith, you're you're not like this actually, but in other areas you're losing that talent, if you like, that you could hang on to. Absolutely. I mean, I guess... For many of us, I don't know if this was the case for you, but for a long time, it felt really uncomfortable talking about this kind of stuff. Um, And it's only in the last few years that I feel comfortable talking about it and kind of owning this part of my story um, because I feel as though, well, I've got nothing to prove now. I don't need to worry about other people judging me. Um, But I think it's much harder when you're um, junior and you're kind of coming up through the ranks, you know, to talk about your background and the fact that you were the first in your family to go to university and that you grew up in a council house and your parents are from, you know, they did manual roles. That that isn't what's expected or certainly wasn't back in the day. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I hope that we, by talking about this, you know, want more people to talk about their journey so that the next generation coming up through that the ranks don't face the same challenges or difficulties that we did um, and that this is just a, you know, part of our backgrounds that we can be proud of and talk openly about. Yeah, and we know that the most successful teams, and that includes teams called businesses, are successful when everyone can really contribute. And if we start from the premise that no one could possibly want to ever be in a, a team where some people for some reason, just didn't feel like they could quite perform at the same level, then you do want to reduce those barriers. And I I think that 
it's only when you get further on in your career that you really start to look back on yourself and and almost set things in context. So I'm sure there were dinners I didn't go to just because I wasn't sure what fork to use or I remember once being in a really awkward situation <laughs> with shellfish where it was just a complicated meal. And I was embarrassed because I didn't know how to get into this thing <laughs> to then eat it. So I was sat there thinking, I, 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 I don't think I'm meant to eat the shell. I'm sure I'm not, but I don't know how to get into it to eat. Uh, it was just ridiculous that you could be in a business situation, having got a first class degree in economics from Southampton, won some prizes when you qualified as an accountant, and you're sat there feeling under pressure because you're not 100% sure how to eat that. That is ridiculous. But it's a classic case of a easy-to-remove barrier for an employer. And there'll be so many people listening to this that will have similar experiences. Uh, you know, the, 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 I'm sat in a restaurant. It's, a, it's an Italian one. Do I order it using the Italian name on the menu or the, the English one underneath? I, I, I go for the English one because I don't want to look stuck up, but I'm sure I got marked down. So <laughs> these are the, and this is literally just um, a lack of cultural capital. I just need to know generally, like, what are the rules? That's all I'm trying to find out. Maybe the rules shouldn't be there, but I'm only trying to navigate. And, and I think more helpful people on doing that. And also recognizing that no one chooses where they start and so actually to be honest i wouldn't have swapped my start no, for anything because so i i think a lot of why i was who you are yeah why i was maybe able to have some success in politics probably was because i had that broader sense of a country that i was part of so i think i wouldn't even characterize disadvantage necessarily as disadvantage i, I think it's just a different start and i think the ultimate place we need to get to on all of these discussions on class and background is we all start from somewhere none of us get to pick none of us get to choose which school broadly we go to and in the end that means we come out with certain pluses and certain minuses that's it that's it and and just understanding that and having employers that can help get the most out of you whoever you are is actually what we're talking about here so do you think there's a there's a misunderstanding about what social mobility actually means in practice in what sense so does it put certain professions on a pedestal and therefore imply that everyone should aim to be a lawyer or a doctor or an accountant or is it more about the opportunity to enter these professions than others as we increase social mobility do we also need to raise the profile of other less status jobs in quotes i think certainly policymakers have often ended up in a, a row about whether social mobility is good or bad just through the semantics, David. So for a while, I think perhaps some in the labor movement thought it was just all about gifted and talented people getting into law or accountancy, et cetera. And of course, in reality, something much more profound. It's about people being able to use their talents and, and it's about choice of opportunity and access to opportunity. So I think I think there has often been a misunderstanding of how broad a term social mobility probably is. And to answer your question about, you know, maybe 
maybe we should be encouraging more people to go into plumbing in a way because actually it's a great profession and it's very high earning. I suppose where we got to was it's the socio-economic. So it's not all about economics. It's about the fact that there are some professions who almost have this higher standing in society. Maybe that's partly because they have traditionally reflected, if you like, people from more privileged backgrounds and the roles they go on to do. Maybe as we broaden out who gets into these roles, both the sort of professions, but also more widely, maybe we'll have a different sense of what social mobility means. I think for me, it's about choice and opportunity. It's about everybody having an opportunity to do what it is that they want to do in their careers. Um, and rather than there being this sense that certain professions are off limits because of where you grew up or which school you went to, it's about leveling the playing field. And it kind of feeds exactly. into that much broader leveling up agenda that you are so passionately um, pushing for. Yeah. And I, I never felt for me, it was about just, I want more opportunity than next, the next person. I just wanted the same opportunities. Yeah. That's all. And that's a very, very different thing. And it is exactly about saying people want to have success in their own terms. And, and actually that will mean very different things for very different people, but it should be their choices rather than barriers that are in the way unnecessarily that mean X, Y, and Z careers are just off limits. Not because they're not capable of doing them or they don't want to do or that they don't want to do them purely just because they don't know the right person. That's mad. That's a mad way of running careers across Britain and, and you're not good for people. I know that David and Tony could have talked to Justine for so much longer. As we highlight in our recent book, Legal Practice in the Digital Age, social mobility is falling more and more within the radar of businesses. A good thing too. No job should be off limits. So that's it for today's podcast. A reminder, you can subscribe to the Shoesmiths Podcast Network on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, or however you consume your podcasts. Thank you for listening today, and goodbye.